As we go to our scripture time this morning, we and because we're back to the lectionary, there are, there are just some scriptures that, that, that come out, but it's amazing, miraculous almost, how some of these fit together. The first you're going to hear is out of that bizarre, incredibly difficult to understand story of Job. This is at the very end of Job. And this is Job and God coming to terms with God's role in the world. And it's also coming to terms with how influential friends can be at times, sometimes in opposition to God. And there are consequences to that. And so it's an interesting twist that we hear in Job. And then out of the gospel, the gospel is one of my favorite stories. It's blind Bartimaeus. We don't really know. This isn't Bartimaeus. We don't really know his name. It's son of Timaeus. And he's a beggar. And he's a blind beggar. Here's the clue. Might this not be about Bartimaeus? Might this be about some others who may be in that crowd? So listen as we read. I have to tell you that in reading the scripture as we got it, I couldn't make sense of it. And I went to my Good News Bible and wrote it from there, the Job part. And then I, about two minutes ago, realized they showed up there. And the words are not going to match. And I'm sorry, I won't do it again. But I couldn't make sense of it when they did it. Okay. Then Job answered the Lord, I know, Lord, that you are all-powerful, that you can do everything you want. You ask how I dare question your wisdom when I am so very ignorant. I talked about things I did not understand, about marvels too great for me to know. You told me to listen while you spoke and to try to answer your questions. In the past, I knew only what others had told me, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. So I am ashamed of all I have said and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Eliphaz, I am angry with you and your two friends because you did not speak the truth about me the way my servant Job did. Now take seven bulls and seven rams to Job and offer them as a sacrifice for yourselves. Job will pray for you, and I will answer his prayer and not disgrace you the way you deserve. You did not speak the truth about me, as Job did. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar did what the Lord had told them to do, and the Lord answered Job's prayer. Then, after Job had prayed for his three friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had had before. Holy wisdom, holy word. You, you, God, you don't care. I got to tell you, it was, it was nice to try and, and match those two up. They're very, they're very close and they're very accurate. So that was a rich experience. So don't worry about it. I invite those that can to stand for the reading of the gospel. They came to Jericho, and he and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho. Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the roadside. 
When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout out and say, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. Many sternly ordered him to be quiet, but he cried out even more loudly, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stood still and said, Call him here. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. So throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Then Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, My teacher, let me see again. (laughs) Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and followed him on the way. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Amen. Now you may be seated. What I love about that is... It is the exclamation point after the reading of the scripture, and so it would be inappropriate for us to be seated. So my apologies, my apologies. Get the exclamation point, particularly today. Friends, it is an amazing story, and, and I, love, I love this story of, of Bartimaeus. But, but like I said, let me just give you a little bit of the, kind of the backstory to this. My class... The two, the two classes now that I'm teaching on Wednesday and Sunday get how important these backstories are. That the Bible is written on a certain level, and really it's, it, you, you, if you just read the surface text and don't go deeper, you're missing 95% of what's intended there. It, it's, it's up to us to mine this stuff, to unwrap it, to unfold it, to explore it to play around with it and and just see where it goes. And this story is no different. Here you have this this guy sitting sitting outside of the city gates of Jericho. The location is important, for Jericho is that place where it all began. It all began. Um, Because that's the first city in which Joshua, with this incredible group who had left Egypt, entered in. Whenever you see Jericho in Scripture, it also means that something new is about to happen. That something, something, God is bringing something else into this land. And so here you have on the heels of last week's Scripture. And if you remember last week, remember what we talked about is the pyramid of leadership. That for many of us, we've grown up in a time where leadership is all about the pyramid, where the leaders are at the top. That pinnacle where, where then everyone below them is expected to follow. And what Jesus does is turn that completely upside down. All in response to this question asked to, to him by two of his closest disciples, James and John. Who said, Lord, you know, we've been walking with you for a while and we feel like we're pretty important. And so I'll tell you what, here's what we'd like. Isn't this so common? This is what we do to God. We tell God what we want. This is what we'd like. We'd like you to put one of us on your right hand and one of us on your left hand in those two phenomenal, powerful seats of honor in your kingdom. Not talking about heaven, talking about earth. When Jesus gets that throne of David, they want to be right here, right there at the kind of the right and the left hand of the king. And Jesus responds to them. The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. And those who want to truly lead 
will be the servant of all. And so he inverts that triangle upside down. A true leader in the Christian sense is a leader who leads to serve others. And then we have this story at Jericho. And, and, and again, here's Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. And, and what we also have to understand is in the context of the time, outside of every city and their, their, um, their main gate, you will find rows of beggars. And those beggars vie for the powerful spots, kind of like what James and John were vying for. And the more seniority, the, the better the spot is. And, and we don't really know where Bartimaeus was in that, but we know that something new is going to happen. We know that there's a lesson here. We know the lesson's going to be about leadership. And, and so what we know now is that it's about some kind of blindness. But it's the central point of this message is all about a question. Notice that the disciples try and shut him up and, and, and try and get Jesus kind of skirted into the city. And what does Jesus do? But stop and says, no, call him and, and let him come to me. And what does this blind man do? But jumps up, sheds his cloak and heads for Jesus. And, you know, one of the, one of the weirdest questions in Scripture when a blind man comes to you, what does Jesus ask him? What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asks a blind man beggar, What do you want me to do for you? And he says, Make me see. Make me see. And he does. Doesn't touch him. Just says, Your faith has made you whole. And suddenly, the son of Timaeus becomes a follower. What is it that we do with God? We, we are those. And what are the blindnesses that we're trying to overcome? But it's going to be based on that question. But what I want to do this morning with that kind of in our minds and the fact that, you know, Job talked about how overwhelming God is and that everything is God's. What, what I want to talk about today is a tithe. Now, usually when I use that T word, every head goes down and people begin to slink in their pews and chairs. Because nobody wants to talk about money in church. But you know what? I'm not going to just talk about money. We're going to look at tithe from a kind of a different perspective, potentially. But to get there, I want to start with the money piece. And then we'll go to some of the other pieces. And so here we have, and just pretend you're all children, and, and I'm going to go back to this again. So here are these three pictures. These are all the gifts that God brings to us. And so I, I need to include you in this. So... As you think about the gifts of God, what are some of the things that, that, that you come up with? you have any gifts of God in your life right now? Music. What is it? Music. music. There's a gift of God. So we thank God for that gift of music. Others? Family. Health. Health. Hold on. One cup at a time. <laughs> Family. Health. Okay, I heard community. What else? Uh, uh, the beauty of the change of the seasons. Ah, the beauty of the change of the seasons. What else? Security. What is it? Security. Security. What else? Love. Love. 
What else? Friends. Healing. Okay. I heard that, and then, hold on. I said to the kids, I wish I had a spigot coming down from the ceiling because these would just automatically refill. Because that's how God's gifts work. They just don't ever go away. I heard friends. What else? Children. Sir, what was it? Children. Children. So here are tremendous, wonderful, powerful gifts of God that I don't think there's an exception in here for people, all of us, who have experienced those in significant ways. And what these red cups, as I said, represent is each of us. Almost overflowing if we truly recognize the gifts of God. And like I said, these pictures would automatically refill in the midst of this. So this is you, these red cups, filled with these gifts. When Jesus asked Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? What's interesting is that question was to be a teaching moment, a teachable moment for the disciples because that's the question every single one of us need to be asking God. What do you need? Given that you have given us incredible gifts throughout our lives, in every aspect of our lives, some in greater measure than others, and those gifts just keep coming. This is us. But God, what do you need from us? The biblical response to that falls into two areas, and those that read my article will know where I'm going with this. The first is God asks of us our first fruits, the gifts that we are given, and that the first fruits of all that we have go back to God, and the way that that is usually represented is in the church, in, in the work of the church. And so we talked about the work of the church, and let me just go through some of those. You're sitting in a beautiful sanctuary. You've already heard the gift of music. I had a chance to sit and have a wonderful time with the confirmation class this morning. So we thank God also for the programs of the church. Look around you and what you will see are a phenomenal group of people within this church that are able to come together because of worship. It's a church where we're celebrating the 50th anniversary, and out of that are coming people who are willing to give gifts around that 50th. We have a new parking lot. We have a group, and I will tell you, particularly of men who dedicate themselves to making sure that this church is in working order. And we have lights, and we have heat. Most of the time it works. <laughs> Thanks to that group of men. We're called to give the first fruits of what God has given us, given us in such abundance, to be given back for the work of the church, all to be done in God's name. But here's the missing piece for most churches. They don't hear the other side. You notice that I 
talked only about the church in this row. And what the Bible calls us to give is 10%. But that's not all. That's not all. Because on the other end is another 10%. That in the agricultural times, in those times in the Old Testament, what the, it was an you know, agrarian society, and so those who had wheat or grapes or fruit or olives or anything were asked to leave 10% of their crops in the fields so that the poor could come and glean, glean those crops. This represents that of the work that we do for the poor. And I look around and I see Andrews Glenn and I see Sophia Way. I see Hammond House. It's almost November and we have Crossroads coming up. I see a backpack program to help hungry children. I know of those in this church that are involved in areas of domestic violence to try and prevent that. There is a tremendous amount of other homeless programs that we support. There are tremendous amounts of feeding programs that we support. We presently have three of our women in Ethiopia to look at world hunger. And I just got a note from Rodi about the work in the Congo that continues and his appreciation for all that you have done for that work. This is what's left. And it's enormous what is left. God's math is a different kind of math. God's math is something we need to come to terms with. And the problem with stewardship sermons like this is that we look at all of it around money. And I'll, I'll get to that in just a second. But here's the other deal. Uh, you, you read it in my article. If, if in fact, we didn't even see ourselves as needing to give 10%, if everyone in the church, and I now know the full spectrum of finances in the church, if everyone involved in the church gave but 1%, 1% or 2% for the work of the church, we would never again have a situation with our budget. Ever. Ever. And on the other side, if we realize that if everyone in the church gave 1% or even 2% to the work for the poor, we would be able to do more than we have ever done in the history of Aldersgate for the work for the poor. That we have ever done. This is God's math. And it's a phenomenally powerful piece of mathematics. But I'm not going to stop there. Because it's not all about money. Money is a piece of it. I'm going to stay a little closer to my notes now because I'm not good at math. <laughs> I want to talk about our time for a second. We, every one of us, no matter rich or poor, no matter where we live, no matter how we see this, we have 168 hours every week given to us as a gift of God. 168 hours. Out of that 168 hours, we can remove about 45 to 50 hours, depending on how well you sleep, to sleep, or how long you sleep. Another 45 to 50 hours for things to do with work or schoolwork or those kinds of things. And if you're retired, I know 
that you're putting in 45 to 50 hours for a variety of things that are not fun for you. You may like to do them, but sometimes they're, they're not fun. So we're going to count that in. Remove another 15 to 18 hours a week for meals and prep time. And by prep time, I mean time in front of the mirror, in the bathroom, brushing your teeth, preparing out of bed to get into bed, whatever that prep time may be, getting ready to go somewhere, and all the meals that you eat. What that leaves is about 50 hours. Again, I was tempted to hand out those old kind of floppy paper plates to everybody with crayons this morning. And it has nothing to do with you and everything to do with I wanted people to create pie charts, but just uh, I'm not, not going to do that. So you're going to have to keep some of this in your head. To, to look at how we look at that 50 hours that are for you, it's probably most of it available on weekends. Some of it involves you know, our children or grandchildren, our youth or other important elements in our lives. But let's look at that 50 hours. I want to just make a couple suggestions. Out of that remaining time, what if you dedicated 10% of that time to do things that will create deeper levels of health in your life? What if it was 5%? That's a half hour every day, five days a week, to create different levels of health. Could be going for a walk, going for a run, going for a ride, going to the gym, but making sure that that half hour a week was set aside to create deeper levels of health in you. If you did that, do you believe you would gain some new level of health? I think many of us would say yes to that question. Okay, so what if you then dedicated, oh, before I get there, well, what did Jesus say? I'm sorry, somebody challenged him about what was the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, right? Huh. Wow. So 5% of that would go to help us be healthier, the strength piece. What if you then dedicated 5% of your time to your children or your grandchildren, and if you don't have any, the children of others? And what if you spent that same 5% or counted that 5% as building and deepening the relationship you have with your partner or your spouse or your significant other or in those relationships that are important for some, it may be around friends. Again, that would be about a half an hour a day, five days a week. But here's the deal with that. It would not be around money. It would not be around other things that, that you have to do as families. It would not be around those things. It would be just to deepen the relationship. Do you know what the national average is for parents with children? The time that they spend simply in conversation with children? You know what the national average is? It's one half hour a week or less. One half hour a week or less where parents are just in conversation, just checking in. Or as we talked about in the confirmation, how is it with your soul? Half hour a week. I'm asking for a half an hour a day or more. Same goes with our relationships with each other. How often do we spend time with each other as, as partners or spouses or significant others or in friends just checking in with each other? It often happens more readily with friends 
than it does with partners in life. So a half hour a day. Now, once you get beyond how weird that would feel, I wonder, might that somehow help your relationship? Heart. What if you set aside 5% of the times left over for you in learning something new? What, what if it could be something having to do with faith? Certainly it could be a hobby that you want to take up or getting better at a hobby. It could be anything. And again, a half an hour a day spent learning, engaging the mind, growing in intellect. There's the mind piece. And the fact that you're here in worship engages, I hope, the peace of the soul. But I want to take even that one step deeper. What if you spent 1% of your time each week 1% just dwelling in the presence of God I don't mean prayer time I mean sitting out and intentionally going someplace where you could watch a sunset or going and getting your rain gear on and just sitting in a dripping wet rainy forest or wherever it is where you feel God's presence most readily, what if you spent 1% of your time just dwelling in God's presence, being overwhelmed by it? Do you know, you know what that's called? Sabbath. Being overwhelmed by God's presence. 1%. Again, another part of the soul. Friends, this is what God's math looks like. And yet what we do, I think, so often is we allow life to get in the way. We allow life to be so overwhelming that what we become is reactive. Reactive over and over. Our whole lives are bound being reactive. When what God is calling us to, whether it's in our giving or our tithing, our time or our skills, our gifts, our talents, Whatever it is, God is asking of us to be proactive. What I'm trying to do is give you a plan, and I'll list this out if you want. I said to first service, I say it to second service, I said it to the confirmation class. Anytime you need time with me, I will carve it out. Particularly around this. I, I look at this culture that we live in right now, and how often do we meet with our financial advisors? I mean, think about it. How often do we meet with our financial advisors and then juxtapose that with how often do we meet with a spiritual advisor when one can help the other and vice versa? It's amazing how tithing works. It's why God asks of this. Why? Even if it was 1% and 1%, the change in what we could do as a church would be enormous. Being proactive. Let me close with this thought. And I want to just talk briefly about a pledge card. What if the story of blind Bartimaeus is all about that question? What if that is the question that should be permeating our minds all the time in our lives? Not 
asking God, what will you do for me? We do that a lot. What if we flip the question? And with this in mind, with the other tithing elements in mind, what if instead we ask God, what do you need from me? That's stewardship. That's life. That's Christianity. That's being followers of Jesus. That's leading to serve. If you haven't already received it, early this next week you're going to receive in the mail a letter from me. And it's your annual financial letter. And within that letter is a pledge card. I don't know all the reasons why people are so reticent to fill out a pledge card. What I keep hearing back around that is that what if my circumstances change? Here's the answer to that. Then your circumstances change. And all we ask is that you let us know. The purpose of a pledge card is not to be some kind of contract. The purpose of a pledge card is to help the finance committee understand what it has to work with. We guessed on one element last year, and we guessed incorrectly. And that's why we're where we are right now. And you're stepping up, and I appreciate that. Pledge cards help us not to have to guess. But here's the deal with a pledge card. Because it's not a contract, what a pledge card represents, what, what a pledge card represents is, is your prayerful and careful consideration of what God is asking of you for the work of the church and for the work for the poor. That's what a pledge card is for. Prayerful, careful, succinct decisions around what the church will have to use for this work. I ask you to prayerfully consider filling out a pledge card with God's math in mind. God's math. So that in the future, we have even more to offer for someone like Isaac, a child not even one years old yet. Please, prayerfully consider what that means and what this math means for you. Finances, time, heart, mind, soul, strength, neighbor, self. Will you pray with me? God, we, we need help with this. It's not spelled out as succinctly in the book that we seek to follow. But in the midst of all that, help us to be so much more proactive, so much more intentional about how we live our lives and help that question undergird it all that Jesus asked Bartimaeus we now ask of you, what do you need me to do for you? Guide us in this time. 
all this in Christ's name. Amen.